Hi, this is Karen Horton. We're continuing our series on virtual colonoscopy, and in this talk, I'm going to discuss how we report it. So how do we actually do our reports here at Johns Hopkins? Well, we base our reports on the recommendations from the Working Group on Virtual Colonoscopy, which was published in Radiology in 2005. And these were experts in virtual colonoscopy who got together and decided exactly how we should approach these reports and what would be our strategy, so we're all doing the same thing. One of the recommendations the group came up with is that you don't report lesions less than five millimeters. If you look at the data, the majority of polyps less than five millimeters or five millimeters or less are hyperplastic. If they are adenomatous, you can detect it the next time it grows on the next screening study. But tiny lesions, if you report them, they're of questionable importance. Most of the time, they may not even be polyps. It might just be mucus, or it could be a hyperplastic polyp, or it could be a tiny benign adenomatous polyp, but at that size, it would definitely be benign. So you don't want to report these tiny lesions because it may be an undesirable you know, effect of all these patients getting false positive diagnoses and going to colonoscopy where they can't even find that little lesion. So in our reports, we do not report any lesions less than or equal to five millimeters. So that's the first thing. Don't waste your time on them. Don't stop at those lesions. You know, Avoid reporting them. Now, if you get to the next size lesion, so lesions or polyps between six and nine millimeters, if you look at the data on that, they're almost all benign too. Really only 30% of those are even adenomatous. The chance of them having cancer or high-grade dysplasia is less than 1% at that size. So there's a little bit controversy what to do with these polyps. Now the group said number one, a good strategy would be fine if you see a lesion six millimeters or greater refer for regular colonoscopy. And that's what I do, and I think that's a reasonable approach. But there's growing data to say that you may not necessarily have to rush to colonoscopy in these patients. So if the patient has no risk factors for colon cancer or no personal history of colon cancer, it may be reasonable to recommend surveillance when you see one or two polyps in the six to nine millimeter range. If you look back at the data from barium enemas, you can see back in the old days, they used to follow polyps on barium enema because they didn't have colonoscopy. Most of these lesions won't grow. Some even get smaller. If they do grow, you have a chance to find it on your follow-up. But we don't know exactly what the intervals should be. Should they come back in a year or two years or three years? So we need a little bit more research there. But there are people who can follow lesions in the six to nine millimeter range. So that's you can make your decision whether you're going to send those people or follow them. Personally, I send them to colonoscopy, but it's good to know this data. So for instance, if you have a difficult patient, an elderly patient, maybe you're doing the study on, you see a seven millimeter polyp in the right colon and they failed at regular colonoscopy, you can feel comfortable following that lesion. Here's another article written specifically on small polyps. So when we talk about diminutive polyps, those are polyps five millimeters or less. Small polyps mean polyps in the six to nine millimeter range. And this was Perry Pickard again. He published a decision analysis model and he estimated the 10 year cancer risk for unresected polyps that were either diminutive, small, or large. So for diminutive, less than five millimeters, you can see it's 0.08%, so almost zero over 10 years. If you look between six and nine millimeters, you can see it's 0.7%. So that's basically what we knew from the data from barium enema days, less than 1% of these patients. And again, this was a 10-year risk. And then if you take larger polyps, you can see 15.7% risk. So certainly we know lesions over a centimeter are the ones that we need to um, watch. So he calculated that the number of polypectomies you would have to do to prevent one colon cancer over 10 years was you'd have to remove 2,353 of the diminutive polyps. 
Okay, you'd have to remove 297 of the small polyps. So this is a different way of looking at the data, basically saying tiny polyps you don't have to worry about. You need to screen the patient regularly. And if they grow and are one of those lesions that are going to become colon cancer, you catch it the next time. In the small 6 to 9 millimeter range, there you have a little bit of leeway. You can either follow them if you're comfortable doing that or send them to colonoscopy. Here's a, uh, that same article on the small polyps. So, you know, they made the point that removal of the large polyps is highly effective. For tiny polyps, low likelihood of advanced neoplasia, and the high cost would be, you know, prohibitive. And that the yield of colonoscopy referral for small polyps, that's in the 6 to 9 millimeter range, suggests that CTC surveillance may be a reasonable management option. Just to show you the other side of the coin, this was an article written by a gastroenterologist, and this was basically, you know, a hypothetical argument. So what he did is he first, in the background, he says removing the small polyps less than 10 millimeters is controversial, and that if we use CTC for screening, the majority of the polypoid lesions that we see will be less than 10 millimeters, right? Because smaller lesions are common. And so he did one of these decision analytic techniques, so they you know, theoretically compared the management strategies for small lesions, whether you would take them out or follow them. So he took this hypothetical average risk patients who had undergone CTC and was found to have a small 6 to 9 millimeter polyp, and then they did the simulation to have them either go immediately for colonoscopy with polypectomy or wait three years and repeat the CT exam. And, you know, I don't understand all these analytical models, but the, the information is there. It was a Markov model. And so they tried to see what would happen over time. So his results were a little bit different than what Perry Pickard uh, proposed. So he found that the colo strategy with the patients who went directly to colonoscopy, basically there were 14 deaths per 100,000 patients. In the other group, those patients who waited, there were 79 deaths. So you can see that the wait strategy was... Uh, associated with a higher number of deaths. Now, of course, this was a theoretical model. Things in real life are different because these people could die of other things in between. But their conclusion was managing those smaller polyps and screening CTC with another CTC exam in three years would result in more deaths. So I think you just have to look at the literature and see what you know the outcome is going to be. But you just know that in that range there's some controversy. So the working group on virtual colonoscopy, there was no argument with lesions greater than a centimeter. Basically, everybody, the data is very clear that a lesion greater than or equal to a centimeter and, you know, distinct colon masses have a high association with cancer and they need to be referred for conventional colonoscopy and those lesions need to be resected. Also, the working group kind of dealt with the problem of if you see, have a patient, they don't have any lesions greater than five millimeters, when do you recommend a follow-up? And they have come to the consensus five years. You don't say 10 years, because theoretically you could be missing tiny polyps, right? Or you may be missing, you know, we're not 100% sensitivity for patients in the six to nine millimeter range. You could be missing a seven or eight millimeter polyp that's kind of tricky. So you surely don't want to wait, uh, wait 10 years. So the recommended follow-up would be five years. So how do you actually construct your report? So first we give the standard patient information and the exam identifiers. I would always say what the clinical indication is. Is this a screening study? Is the patient symptomatic? Was it because of a failed colonoscopy? If it was, how far did they get? That kind of thing. What kind of prep under the technique? Did you use air or carbon dioxide? 
You may also want to comment on your interpretation strategy. So I always say whether I'm doing a primary 2D or 3D review. I also comment on the adequacy of the prep and distension. So I have colon distension, and I say, is it good, very good, poor, and then colonic uh, was the prep good? You know, is there a lot of stool left over? I make comments on that. And then I discuss the findings. Usually measure the largest diameter of a polyp. And remember, you don't include the stalk in that. Give the location. You may want to give morphologies. It's sessile, pedunculated, flat. Um, and then they're thinking of coming up with a classification system like the BIRADS used for uh, mammography, where you could use the C0 to C4, which is based on the polyp size and morphology. And then the E0 to E4 would include coding for the extra colonic findings that you see. I personally don't use that, but it may be something that we use in the future. At Hopkins, the way we do it is we have two separate reports. So the day of the study, whatever radiologist is reading out that day, they read basically the abdomen and pelvis and discuss the extra colonic structures, and then they state that the virtual colonoscopy will be dictated separately. And then there's only a few of us that do the virtual colonoscopy, so that's a separate report. And I like it that way because when I do my virtual colonoscopy, I can focus on the colon. I can spend my time looking for polyps. I don't have to report all these extra colonic findings, so I don't have to worry about lung nodules and things like that. So here are just a couple of cases that I wanted to show you. Here's axial images showing a lesion uh, in the upper part of the rectum. It's about 2.5 centimeters. You can see it on the axial and the coronal image. Here you can see it on the soft tissue windows and on the endoluminal fly-through views. So that's case one. So if you look at that and just spend a second thinking, what do you think that is? Now there's a little bit of tagging on it, but to me it looks like homogeneous soft tissue density. And it had the same morphology on both views. So the question I'll ask you is, what do you think the most likely diagnosis in that case is? Do you think it was stool, polyp, lipoma, or something else, like a normal fold or diverticular disease or a foreign body? Okay, in that case, the answer, I hope everybody got it right, is a polyp, right? It was soft tissue attenuation. It's about 2.5 centimeters. It could be cancer, right, based on that size. There was no heterogeneity to suggest that it was stool. There is some stool tagging, but that's stuck to the outside. It's not mixed in the center. So that was an example of a 2.5 centimeter polyp, and then you definitely, in that case, would recommend for colonoscopy and resection. Okay, here's another case. We have axial images and we have coronal images. And if you look very carefully, there's a lesion there in the descending colon. It's kind of lobular. It's a little tricky on these lung windows, which is typically how you're reviewing these. I'm going to show you another example here where you can see it on the soft tissue windows. And it's on the medial wall of the descending colon there. Okay, those are the soft tissue windows, so it gives you a view of what the internal density of the lesion is. So if question number two for that case two, what is the most likely diagnosis? Do you think that was stool, polyp, lipoma, or other? I hope everybody said lipoma. If you go back and look at that slide, you'll clearly see that it's homogeneous fat density. And it's much easier on the soft tissue windows. So that was an example of lipoma, which we see fairly regularly. Okay, let's try case three. These are the endoluminal fly-through views. You can see that there's a fold there and there's a little bulbous part on the fold and both the prone and the supine images. So if you're flying through and you see that, you need to correlate it with the axial images. So there's the prone and the supine axial images. And if you look very carefully, you'll see on the posterior wall of the transverse colon, there is a little lesion between two folds, and you can see it on both views. On the supine, you can see there's a little high-density 
barium pooling around it. So that's our question. What is that? I'll tell you it's about eight millimeters. So question three is what's the most likely diagnosis? Do you think that was stool, polyp, lipoma, or other? I hope everybody said polyp. On both the prone and supine images, it was in the same position, the posterior wall of the transverse colon, and it looked real on the fly-through views. You saw that little bulbous area on, along the fold. So we're going to finish up with future directions. A computer-aided diagnosis, a lot of work and research is in this area. It will definitely, I think, be a part of how we interpret these studies. It's a little difficult with the FDA, you know, it's a little tricky using CAD, but it can be done as it's done with mammography. But I think the reason is that sometimes it's tricky to find these folds and you can really teach a computer to find them. And even the early CAD showed good results. And this was an article from 2006 and the expert readers, their average sensitivity for all polyps were 70% and 19 of the 21 polyps missed by the expert, experts were detected by the CAD. So you certainly can't use the CAD as your primary read, but if you go through the case and you're fin you know, just before you finish, you look at what the computer said and go back and see if any of those look real to you, it's like a second reader, a second way to check. And certainly can be used in training as well to help the people learn what the computer shows. Now a lot of the CAD software out there was developed before we had tagging. So they need to modify it a little bit to take into consideration that most people are using tagging. So the CAD won't pick up these white lesions. Here's an article from 2008. The use of CAD led to significant increase in sensitivity for detecting polyps in the 6 millimeter or larger range. So no change in the sensitivity or specificity for polyps greater than a centimeter because those are usually fairly obvious. So the CAD really helped picking up those small polyps in the 6 to 9 millimeter range. And the average reading time was 5.1 minutes without the CAD and the CAD added an additional 3.1 minutes. I think that's incredibly fast, the five minutes. I, I spend about 15 minutes a case. Also, the future direction includes electronic subtraction. Remember that big study by Perry Pickard? He actually used subtraction in that. It was 2003, I think. Um, electronic subtraction means that the computer will go out and subtract all the residual stool and tagging agent. And that's a good way to make it more efficient. You have less issues with stool or things hidden. So that will probably be incorporated into most software. Remember, this is a work in progress, and we don't know exactly the best way to interpret these, but I think you'll see more vendors coming with electronic subtraction. Also, some of you may be familiar with the tomographic colon unraveling. That's where the computer takes the colon out, the fly-through out, opens it up so it looks like a pathology specimen. If you could do that, then you avoid the flying forward and backward. You're just simply looking at the flat specimen. The early versions of this had some issues where they cut the colon, things get stretched, so they need to work on it a little bit, but this may be the way we look at it in the future. It's certainly something that looks promising. Also, the way we do the endoluminal views is changing. So this would be a typical endoluminal view. We have Siemens scanners, so this is the software from Siemens, where it looks like you're flying through the colon. And in this case, you can see that there's two little lesions on the fold closest there's a small little polypoid lesion and then there's something else a little further back but because we're looking at a surface rendering we can't really tell what's stool and what's polyp or what's tagging agent or not because everything looks the same orange well on the Siemens they have visualization views that are different so in this case you can see that 
it looks square and you can see that the edges are kind of stretched out so this is their way to get around flying forward and backward or looking at the areas of the houster that may be partially collapsed as you're flying through those could be blind spots so by stretching out the haustrations as you're flying through as they do in what they call these panoramic views you have less false positives so you'll be able to see in these little corners also you can see on the left that would be the standard way to do it but they do have options now that you can just a click of the button that if it looks white on the 2d it will look white on the 3d so you can see in that example from before the lesion that's closest to you the little bulbous thing on the fold looks like a polyp right there's a little tagging around it that lesion we see more distally you can see on the right it's white so when you click on this button this kind of option it looks white so even without going to the 2d image for correlation I can see that's white and I can just keep going we do need more research on comparing the software you think all these software manufacturers are the same they're all different so the software packages are different and if you take experienced people and you put the same data in different software packages sometimes you get different results so we definitely need to work that out um, and make sure that it's comparable you know regardless of the type of manufacturer there's a little bit of controversy in how to measure a polyp. So people are saying maybe we shouldn't measure the size or diameter. Maybe we should get a volume and follow this over time. I don't know what the results of that will be, but people are looking into that. And then people are looking into um, cathartic-free colonoscopy. So could you do it without any stool cleansing at all? And there have been a couple articles that look pretty good. So basically, instead of cleansing the colon, you just give lots of tagging, and then you have the computer subtract it out and leave the polyp. So if we could do that, it would be great because it would avoid the stool cleansing. A couple of articles on CTC and PET. Maybe PET can determine whether it's a malignant polyp or not, but I, I don't know anybody who's really doing that. It seems prohibitively expensive. So one of the other controversies is who should interpret these examinations. I think I feel that it should be radiologists, of course, but gastroenterologists or even internists feel that maybe they should be interpreting it. This was the position paper from the American Gastroenterology Association from 2006. And uh, if you read it, you can see that they're saying that they're taking a leadership role in CT colonography at this point and that they should be able to manage any technology that can help them provide better patient care and at this point they are starting to train their people and educate their people in virtual colonoscopy now they have the same problem as the cardiologist had somebody has to look at the extracolonic structures and I'm sure I could train a gastroenterologist to do virtual colonoscopy just like I trained the fellows in the residence it would be more difficult to train a gastroenterologist because they don't understand the principles of CT and density and that kind of thing but I'm sure it can be done but they still have the issue of somebody needs to look at the extracolonic structures also, could you train a technologist, maybe to be your second reader or even your first reader and go through it once and mark the lesions? So in this study, they took radiologists, residents, and technologists, and they did fairly well for larger lesions. So I think anybody who's really interested and wants to be trained, especially if they're in the radiology field, could be trained. So you may want to have a helper radiology tech to go through it once and you know prepare the data for you. How many readers do you need? Of course, if you have a second reader, you'll do better. It's just like with mammography or anything else. But I think in most cases, you don't really have the time or the resources to have two radiologists reading it. The ACR practice guidelines, if you want to start your training in virtual colonoscopy, recommends viewing at least 50 cases. So this can be done different ways. First of all, there are interactive training courses. There's different types of courses. There's courses where it's hands-on, where you're actually given the data sets in a workstation and you've got to go through all those. Definitely need to do that. And you have to be comfortable with your software, so make sure it's on the same manufacturer as you have. 
There are also courses, which I think are very good, where you're not actually sitting at a workstation, but you get to see a lot of cases. So you have patients, uh, you, sorry, you have physicians at the front of the room, either on a workstation or with PowerPoint and AVI files, where they show you a lot of cases. So that can be done much more efficiently in a day, a day and a half, where you're not physically looking at the case, um, you're not actually doing it on a workstation, but you're looking at the lesions and you're trying to decide is this a polyp or is this stool? So I know they have courses with SCBT, with uh, Renkin Ray, and with RSNA, where they have these symposiums where you're in the audience with the audience response system and the physicians at the front showing you the case and then you make your determination whether it's a polyp or not. You really need both of those. You need a good 50 cases, definitely, where you're going through and looking at it yourself and learning the software, but you need these other kind of courses too. You can see a lot of polyps because in real life, you know, 92% of the cases you look at are not going to have anything over five millimeters. So it's hard to learn in real life because cases are few and far between that have polyps. So if you can go to these courses, you can see 50 and 60 examples of polyps in a short period of time. So how do we currently use virtual colonoscopy. We use it at Johns Hopkins. If it's a failed colonoscopy, they come right down. Maybe they couldn't get to the right colon, patient failed sedation, or maybe there was a cancer. We use it in patients that can't have a conventional colonoscopy. So anticoagulated patients, frail patients, older patients, and we do screening. So CT colonoscopy has the potential to become an accepted technique for evaluation of the non-visualized parts of the colon after incomplete colonoscopy. So instead of you know, referring patients for barium enema for this indication, now we do virtual colonoscopy. And that this was an article that specifically looked at CT colonography after incomplete colonoscopy, and they had very good results. If you look at that Perry Pickard trial, I just want to bring up one more thing. So this is New England Journal of Medicine 2007, his more recent study. If you look at the sensitivity of virtual colonoscopy for adenomatous polyps, you can see over a centimeter was 93.8%. If you look at sensitivity of optical colonoscopy for adenomatous polyps over a centimeter, that's 87%. So actually, the CT did a little bit better than the optical colonoscopy. And the insurance companies noticed this. And some insurance companies are now starting to pay. Uh, and they're paying for either an incomplete colonoscopy or a diagnostic CTC, so the patient's symptomatic, or patients who can't have a regular colonoscopy. And in some cases, they're even paying for screening. So instead of a regular colonoscopy, it can be more cost-efficient for the insurance companies to pay for a CT. And this was an excellent article that demonstrates that. So in Wisconsin, where Perry Pickard is and Kim is, their payer decided to pay for virtual colonoscopy for screening. So they had 3,000 people that either got the CT for screening or the regular colonoscopy for screening. So how many people who got the CT actually had to have a regular colonoscopy was about 8%. So that's good. So 92% of the people that went to get the CT, that was it. That's all the company had to pay for. They didn't need anything else. 8% also needed the regular colonoscopy. And I think what was interesting is that first, the group that had the regular colonoscopy or the optical colonoscopy, you can see there were seven colon perforations in that group of 3,000 people. There were no perforations in the CT group. And also, if you look at the polyps, so remember 8% of the CT group had to have a colonoscopy, and of them, 561 polyps were removed. But the 3,000 people that went directly to colonoscopy, look how many polyps were removed, 2,434. And that's because the colonoscopists remove everything, even those tiny polyps that we're ignoring on CT. So you can see the cost of the insurance company for the optical colonoscopy is definitely bigger. First of all, the procedure itself costs more because you have anesthesia and all that, but also because you're removing all those tiny polyps. Every time you remove a polyp, it's a biopsy charge and also a pathology charge.
So in conclusion, you can see CT colonography has made significant advancements since its introduction in 1994. Before it can be a widespread screening tool, it's really at that point now, kind of right at the edge. We're waiting for the Akron 664 results. Kind of they've been leaked out a little bit but haven't been published. And what I can tell you is they're very favorable. So the insurance companies are looking at this very carefully and they're changing their policies and creating guidelines for when they will pay for a CT colonoscopy because they realize that it's cost effective um, to screen this way. Okay, thank you for your attention.